Chapter One of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Francis Tiffany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One Birth and Ancestry. Though by ancestry and subsequent education a Massachusetts woman, Dorothea, christened Dorothy Lynde Dix, was born April 4, 1802, in the state of Maine. Her birth occurred during a temporary stay of her parents in the town of Hampton on the Penobscot River, one, in fact, of the very many places in which her father, who was of an unstable and wandering turn of mind, appears for a short time to have lived. Indeed, this instability of character on the part of Joseph Dix, the father, together with the frequent changes of residence and occupation it involved, makes it impossible to trace with any precision the various stages of the early childhood of his later so remarkable daughter. Glimpses of this childhood are lighted on at various spots in Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont, as well as in Worcester and Boston, Massachusetts. So painful, however, to the subsequent woman always remained the memory of its bitterness that in no hour of the most confidential intimacy could she be induced to unlock the silence which to the very end of life she maintained as to all the incidents of her early days as throwing light on the development of character in a woman of the ultimate stamp of mystics it becomes necessary to hint at least at the peculiar nature of the trials to which she was so early subjected there were the trials that inevitably follow in the track of a shiftless aimless and wandering life poverty lack of public respect the absence of permanency of relation with schools, churches, and a circle of endeared and sympathetic friends. Among the abnormal tendencies of the father was one of subjection to states of fanatical religious excitement, during which he became wholly engrossed in writing and issuing tracts, the supreme importance of which to the world's salvation outweighed in his mind every question of the material maintenance and needful education of his family these tracts the little dorothy then twelve years old and for the time being in worcester massachusetts was to save expense set so continuously to pasting and stitching together that in her revolt at the hateful task, so this seemingly authentic story has come down, she ran away from Worcester and put herself under the protection of her grandmother, then resident in Boston. A proud, ambitious, and high-spirited child, her paternal grandmother living in considerable wealth and dignity, 
She appears to have suffered much the same misery of humiliation at being cut off from advantages of education and kept at menial tasks, which Charles Dickens so painfully analyzes in the picture he draws of his own boy apprenticeship in the blacking factory. Thus, the acute sensitiveness of fiber and high sense of personal dignity so characteristic of the mature woman were manifest from the very start. Very early in life, then, was the self-reliant and indomitable nature of the child rudely awakened to the necessity of resolutely fronting the world and fighting her way on her own resources. In seeking refuge in her grandmother's house, she saw the only chance open to her of securing a fit education. She had at this time a much younger brother, born ten years later than herself, toward whom she felt the duty would surely devolve on her of becoming protectress and child mother. The first step to the possibility of this lay in achieving independence for herself, a conviction increased in strength when, in the following year, another brother was born. Break through these trammels of poverty and humiliation she must. Force her way out to some pecuniary basis she must. Eager for knowledge, ambitious for more refined and intellectual social opportunities, loaded down already with a premature sense of responsibility, thus early had the iron entered her soul, and the conviction been developed in her of the reality and sharpness of the battle of life. From what ancestral source, then, it is natural to ask, had descended to the child this self-reliant will, this indomitable resolve to open up for herself a career of her own, together with so high-wrought a sense of moral obligation. All the more natural is it to ask this question, seeing that her immediate parents were lacking in energetic fiber. Very common is it to notice that salient family traits overleap one entire generation, only to reappear in renewed force in the generation following. Emphatically was this the case in the instance before us. The paternal grandfather and grandmother of Dorothea were persons of very marked characteristics characteristics which, in a more refined and spiritualized shape, and enlisted in the service of an impassioned idea, took higher through kindred shape in the grandchild. These furnished the vigorous native stock into which evolving providence was to engraft scions capable of more sweetly perfumed flowers and of fruit of a richer flavor. Dr. Elijah Dix, the grandfather, was born August 24, 1747, in Watertown, Massachusetts, of sound old New England stock, but poor, as were most children of large families in the colonial days. He had his own way to make in the world. Struggling doughtily for such desultory education as he could secure, 
his aspirations were none the less high, and to be satisfied with nothing short of fitting himself for one of the learned professions, as in those days theology, law, and medicine were, perhaps we should now think somewhat humorously, termed. A college career he could not compass, effecting, however, an arrangement with Dr. John Green, an eminent practitioner in Worcester. He spent with him three years, engaged in compounding medicines and studying the theoretical part of the profession. And after supplementing this term with two more years under William Greenleaf, druggist of Boston, he began practice in 1770 as physician and surgeon in Worcester. The characteristics of the young man eminently fitted him for worldly success. Strong in body, courageous and self-asserting in temperament, ambitious of power and position, nothing daunted him. And yet, along with these qualities— whose aggressive excess rendered him highly unpopular, he united a large degree of public spirit and of far-sighted practical judgment. As he rose to position and could make his influence felt, he was the first man in Worcester to advocate by precept and example the planting of shade trees for the adornment of the town. A remarkable idiosyncrasy of taste, it was thought, at a period in our colonial history when, in the weary struggle of the early settlers with the primeval forests, a tree was looked upon as as natural an enemy of man as a bear or an Indian. He was further a zealous promoter of all means of opening up the country for freer trade and social intercourse, as notably in the instance of the Worcester and Boston Turnpike. Those were the days when the title of Pontifex Maximus meant something, and was not worn as an idle badge of honor by emperors and popes. As an instance, moreover, of his sturdy honesty, it may be stated that, at the end of the Revolutionary War, he crossed the ocean to settle his financial accounts with his former associate in medical practice, Dr. Sylvester Gardiner, and to pay over what he considered fairly the due of his partner. This Dr. Gardiner had, at the outbreak of disturbance with the mother country, taken the royalist side, and so been forced, as a refugee, to flee the colony. As a staunch patriot, Dr. Dix might have felt himself entirely absolved from handing over a penny to one whom it was only needful to stigmatize as a traitor. As an honest man, however, he did not feel himself thus absolved. Returning home from England with a large collection of books, surgical instruments, and chemical apparatus, Dr. Dix now engaged in the sale of such articles, pursued his medical practice, and projected with great ardor the plan of an academy. In spite, however, of acknowledged ability and public spirit, 
His dictatorial ways made him so unpopular with his fellow citizens that a plot was laid to drive him out of town, or at any rate to subject him to personal violence. Suspecting what was on foot, he, at the first sign of practical action, proved himself entirely equal to the emergency. One evening, a man called at his house to summon him to the sickbed of a pretended patient, living several miles out of town, and on the road to whose house, as later appeared, an attacking party had placed itself in ambush. The sturdy doctor promptly expressed his professional willingness to go, taking the precaution, however, to throw open the window and call out in stentorian tones to his manservant, "'Bring round my horse at once. See that the pistols in my holsters are double-shotted. Then give the bulldog a piece of raw meat and turn him loose to go along.'" It is needless to say that the friend of the imaginary sick man folded his tents like the Arabs and silently stole away. With the view of opening up to himself a still wider field of activity, Dr. Elijah Dix, in 1795, seven years before the birth of Dorothea, removed to Boston, where he established a drugstore on the south side of Fannel Hall, and further founded in South Boston chemical works for refining sulfur and purifying camphor. Successful in these enterprises, his indomitable energy next sought vent in large land speculations in the state of Maine, in which state he purchased immense tracts, buying in one instance 20,000 acres for the site of a single projected farming village, and becoming founder of the towns of Dixmont and Dixfield the settlers, and which obtained the titles to their farms from him. This diversion of interests on the part of Dr. Elijah Dix henceforth necessitated his making frequent journeys to Maine to see after his property there, on one of which visits he died. His death occurred on June seventh, 1809, and his body was interred and the burial ground near Dixmont Center. Thus easily is the birth of his granddaughter Dorothea in Hamden, Maine, accounted for. Hamden lies at but a short distance from Dixmont, and was then the only town in the section of sufficient size to furnish decent quarters. No doubt, Dr. Elijah Dix had attempted to make his son Joseph his agent for overseeing and disposing of the main lands. The salient traits, then, of the character of Dr. Elijah Dix were indomitable energy and spirit of initiative in new enterprises, fertility of resource, dogged honesty, large public spirit, and a masterful temperament that would ride over obstacles no matter at what cost of personal popularity. Though but seven years old when her grandfather died, Dorothea always retained a vivid remembrance of what she saw of him in Boston in her childhood, 
particularly of his fondness for driving her around with him in his chaise, and of talking with her in his strong and racy way. He stood out on the one bright spot in her earliest memories, implanting in her mind a lifelong admiration for his robust and picturesque qualities. Indeed, of the many great asylums for the insane, which she was later instrumental in founding, the only one she ever permitted to be associated with her own name was Dixmont Hospital in Pennsylvania, a concealed tribute to her grandfather as founder of the town of Dixmont, Maine. After the death of Dr. Elijah Dix, his widow lived on in Boston, occupying the, for those days, quite stately house which went by the name of the Dix Mansion. It was in the large garden surrounding this house that from some chance seed sprang the celebrated Dix Pear, one of those Melchizedeks in pomology, without father and without mother, which, like the far-famed Seckle, originated from the start an illustrious family of its own. Here, then, continued to reside the widow of Dr. Elijah Dix, who was destined to survive her husband twenty-eight years, dying only at the late date of April twenty-ninth, 1837. As one whose personal qualities and peculiar position as head of the house exercised in many ways a marked influence on the development of her granddaughter, it is necessary briefly to speak of her prominent characteristics. Dorothy Lind, born May 23, 1746, and married October 1, 1771, to Dr. Elijah Dix, was the daughter of Joseph Lind, who, after the burning of Charleston Mass by the British troops, sought refuge with his wife and children in Worcester. Already far advanced in life, when, at the age of twelve, her granddaughter became a member of her family, Madame Dix was a typical example of the New England Puritan gentlewoman of the period. Dignified, precise, inflexibly conscientious, unimaginative, and without trace of emotional glow or charm. For generations, indeed, it had been the outcome of the Puritan training of New England to produce a class of mothers unflinchingly nerved, if need be, to die at the stake for their children, but whom no threat of penal fires would have betrayed into the weakness of kissing them good night. And as these mothers duly advanced to the dignified stage of grandmothers, the tendency became ever more sharply accentuated. Indeed, for simple emotional love, as a fountain leaping up in sallies of playful tenderness, the majority of the parents of those now far-away days in which Madame Dix had received the earliest stamp of the chilled steel parental die shared no more sympathetic a response than a mill engineer for the poetry of the charming cascades of the stream he seeks to utilize for grinding the corn and weaving the cloth of the people. 
to save waste of available power, and to divert the full emotional flow into a strong banked prosaic raceway, from which the full head could be turned on to the practical work of making the jackets and knitting the socks of the young, of training them to habits of rigid industry, the exacting iron diligence over the school lessons, and of inculcating the dogmas of the catechism in a way to make them a salutary terror for life, this seemed the only aspect of the divine quality of love which could be reconciled with a severe sense of duty, and saved from the fatal danger of degenerating into luxurious and enervating sentimentalism. There were good sides to this extreme, and there were very bad ones. It ensured a Spartan discipline of education which put bark and iron into the blood. But it steadily atrophied, and as years advanced, actually ossified the lovelier and sunnier capacities of affection, opening up an impassable abyss between old age and the sensitive, clinging heart of childhood. To Madame Dix, then, and to the old Dix mansion, the child Dorothea owed, on the one hand, a debt of lasting obligation, and on the other, years of acute suffering and heart starvation. When she sought refuge from the unendurable humiliation of her life in Worcester, it was to her grandmother's house that she came, and here she secured the advantages of several years of school education. It was a grim and joyless home, but nonetheless it was a home in which she was trained to habits of unremitting diligence. No waste of time was permitted, no task allowed to be done in a slipshod way. Here was a child, the grandmother felt, who would have her own way to make in the world, and who, as early as possible, would have to become the mainstay of her family. She must fit herself, then, for some occupation by which she could win her bread. It would be cruelty to bring her up with any other idea. In all this, Madame Dix unquestionably felt that she was fulfilling the whole law of love, and doing unto another as she at least ought to desire that another should do unto her. Still, to the child who was immature enough to crave a little play, a little petting, and a little romance, the process seemed no doubt very chilling and severe. In later life, people come to be grateful for many things which in childhood looked only hard and cruel. The day was to arrive when Miss Dix, in her watchful supervision of vast institutions for the relief of human misery, institutions in which failure in the minutest detail of organization might lead to the most tragic results, was to prove the invaluable benefit of this minute and rigid training. Stern and unrelenting as it was, the grandmother had, after all, an ideal of her own as to the thoroughness with which every piece of work should be done, which was a true ideal. 
Indeed, there still lives in Massachusetts a lady who, after the school was later on established in the old Dick's mansion, as will soon be recounted, describes as one of the most indelible memories of her own childhood days how, as an especial reward for excellence and moral conduct, she herself was allowed the unusual privilege of making an entire shirt under the radamanthine eye of Madame Dix. The sense of moral responsibility precipitated on the poor child was literally crushing, as now first the startling revelation broke on her mind of the eternal distinction between the right way and the wrong way in the minutest particulars. Of the thousands of stitches entering into the awe-inspiring structure, not one must differ from another to a degree that could be detected by a micrometer. The one and only immutably correct way of cutting and fitting the neckband seemed far more out of the range of mortal possibility than the camel's passage through the eye of a needle. And yet to this day the lady frankly admits that well-nigh fatal as the strain proved at the time, the benefit was lifelong of having thus been made to do at least one piece of work thoroughly well. Indeed, she still speaks of the experience in the same vein of enthusiastic gratitude in which here and there a veteran scholar descants on the intellectual bark and iron put into him by the inexorable discipline of the classics, and the heroic days when, in the eyes of the Latin master, a misplaced particle in a sentence was as unpardonable a sin as was, in the eyes of Madame Dix, a misplaced stitch in a shirt. Meanwhile, the passionate, craving heart of the child had to get along as best it could. She had her bread, though it was often wet with salt tears. She had shelter, education, and oversight. The oversight no doubt bestowed in her what was felt to be absolute fidelity to the clearest sense of duty. But as for a warm breast and loving arms in which to nestle and confide, this the kind heavens did not grant her. In bitter intensity of grief, would she at times in later life break out over this irremediable loss in her childhood days. I never knew childhood, she would passionately exclaim, and it was true. To become independent in means, to educate herself for a position that would command support and respect, to be able to get her two younger brothers under the same roof with her, and enact the part of child-mother to them. This early developed into the indomitable purpose of her life. There was, in those days, but one career of independence a growing girl could look forward to, the vocation of the teacher. Happily, preparation for this calling was in the line of the deepest instincts of her nature. These were at that time thirst for knowledge and longing to exert direct moral influence. The first authentic date 
of any attempt at teaching on the part of the ardent young girl is her opening a school for little children in Worcester, Mass., in 1816-17. to 17. She was then 14 years old, and so girlish in look that, as she herself tells the story, she thought it necessary to put on long skirts and lengthen the sleeves of her dress so as to command due respect by a more adult appearance. There still lives in Worcester one of those pupils, who vividly recalls the child's teacher as tall for her age, easily blushing, at once beautiful and imposing in manner, but inexorably strict in discipline. The skirt and sleeves of a grown woman were, this lady thinks, in no way necessary to secure for the young girl absolute ascendancy over her pupils. She bore the stamp of authority from the start. Herself brought up in a stern school, she had at that date little idea of any government but the government of will. Indeed, it is always characteristic of very young people— abruptly forced to play the role of maturity and experience, that they overdo things. They show this fault in teaching their younger brothers and sisters at home, and they fall into it in a still more pronounced way when, on taking charge of a school, they think it incumbent on them, as perhaps it is, to assert themselves from the outset. Thus, the impression left on the minds of the little girls and boys in Worcester by their 14-year-old teacher, so far from being that of a half-grown girl they could venture to trifle with, was that of one of whom they stood in fear. In truth, now first manifested itself the instinctive consciousness of a nature born to rule, and seizing the first swift and ready way into what a furnace of pain and affliction that nature was to be baptized before it could be duly refined and tempered, through what years of lonely wrestlings, battle with disease, submission of an iron will to the counsels of a holier might it was to pass before she should become fitted to rule as justly and yet imperially as she finally came to rule. All this lay happily hidden from her in the womb of the slowly unfolding future. End of chapter 1